If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will cover maximizing guidelines for preconception counseling and care. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention defines preconception care as a set of interventions aimed at identifying and modifying biomedical, behavioral, and social risks to a woman's health or pregnancy outcome through prevention and management. The goal is to ensure that the woman is as healthy as possible before conception to promote her health and the health of her future children. Preconception care is integral to primary care for women in the reproductive years. It is not a single medical visit, but rather should be incorporated into every medical decision and treatment recommendation for these women. Nearly one half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. Family planning is an essential component of preconception care and allows optimal opportunity for health promotion and preventative care. Primary care clinicians, including OBGYNs, should consider asking all patients of reproductive age about intention to become pregnant and providing contraceptive counseling tailored to patients' intentions. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive use can assist OBGYN physicians in counseling patients about contraceptive choices and provides evidence-based guidelines on the safety of contraceptive methods for women with specific characteristics and medical conditions. In addition to contraceptive management, it's also important to advise all women of reproductive age who are at risk for pregnancy to take folic acid supplementation 400 micrograms daily to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. The college also recommends assessment of body mass index and counseling women who are overweight or obese or even underweight about achieving a healthy body weight before becoming pregnant. It's also recommended to counsel women with diabetes about the importance of glycemic control before conception. It's also advised, of course, to assist patients in achieving a hemoglobin A1C level as close to normal as possible to reduce the risk of congenital anomalies. The college also recommends a check for use of teratogenic medications as part of preconception care and change to safer medications when and if possible. Use the fewest medications at the lowest dosages in order to control disease. It's also advised to screen patients who wish to become pregnant for sexually transmitted infections and any other communicable diseases they may be at risk for. Lastly, the college recommends an update of hepatitis B, influenza, measles, mumps, rubella, the Tdap, and varicella immunizations as needed in patients who are desiring future pregnancy. Well, let's address overweight women who seek preconception counseling. In the U.S., 26% of women, or up to 30% in some studies, who are 20 to 39 years of age are deemed overweight based on a BMI of 25 to 29.9 
BMI. And 29% are obese. That's a BMI of 30 or greater. Women who are overweight or obese are at risk of diabetes, gestational diabetes, and hypertension. These conditions are associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes, including macrosomia, shoulder dystocia, operative delivery, congenital anomalies, intrauterine growth restriction, spontaneous abortion, stillbirth, preeclampsia, and eclampsia. There are numerous effective interventions for women who are overweight or obese. A systematic review found that out of five commercial diets, Weight Watchers was the least costly and women maintained about a 3% weight loss two years after intervention. This review noted that medically supervised programs are more expensive and have higher rates of attrition, but are also associated with greater weight loss compared to other types of programs. Women who are overweight or obese are more likely to have difficulty with conception because of insulin resistance and oligomenorrhea or PCOS variants. Weight loss and medications can improve these symptoms as well as fertility. Now, ACOG recognizes that being underweight is also not ideal either. Low pre-pregnancy weight, defined as a BMI less than 18.5, is associated with preterm birth and low birth weight. Low body weight is also associated with nutrient deficiencies, osteoporosis, amenorrhea, infertility, and certain arrhythmias. Infant whose mothers had low pre-pregnancy body weight are also at risk of gastroschisis. So that's a clinical pearl. Infants whose mothers had low pre pregnancy body weight are at higher risk of gastroschisis. Women with low BMIs should be assessed for eating disorders and counseled about how being underweight can affect their health and future pregnancy. All right, next, let's talk about a few chronic medical conditions as it pertains to preconception care. Diabetes is the most common serious disease to affect the maternal fetal dyad. The disease affects nearly 10% of women of reproductive age, and about 1% of pregnancies are complicated by pregestational diabetes. Pregestational diabetes increases the risk of miscarriage, congenital fetal anomalies, and perinatal death. Pregestational diabetes is classified according to the White Pregnancy Classification Scheme. Glucose is teratogenic at high levels, and rates of congenital fetal anomalies are directly related to glycemic control in the first trimester. Good glycemic control during organogenesis reduces rates of congenital malformations. Preconception hemoglobin A1c levels should approach those considered normal in patients without the condition. National organizations and ACOG recommends varying targets of 7% or lower. Pregnancy is associated with higher rates of hypoglycemia during treatment, decreased hypoglycemic awareness, increased rates of diabetic ketoacidosis, and the progression of diabetic retinopathy and nephropathy. Next, let's cover hypertension. Chronic hypertension affects 3% of women of reproductive age. Chronic hypertension in pregnancy is associated with higher rates of preterm birth, placental abruption, intrauterine growth restriction, preeclampsia, and fetal death. Women with chronic hypertension are at risk of developing hypertension that is worsening and end organ damage, and 25% of women with hypertension will develop superimposed preeclampsia during pregnancy. 
pregnancy outcome is related to the degree of hypertension. There's no evidence that treating mild to moderate hypertension in pregnancy improves perinatal outcome. However, treating severe hypertension defined as a systolic blood pressure of greater than 160 or a diastolic pressure greater than 110 does improve pregnancy outcome. Caring for women of reproductive age with hypertension should include educating them about the risks of hypertension during pregnancy and that their medication regimen may need to be changed before conception. Remember, it's always important to women with both diabetes and hypertension to review all medications prior to conception. Women with hypertension and pregnancy should not use ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Both medications have been associated with fetal renal anomalies and fetal death. For women with seizure disorders, it's important to review their medications before conception and to advise not to get pregnant until their seizures have been well-controlled or they've had a period where they've been seizure-free. Seizure disorders are the most common neurological diseases to affect pregnant women, and both the diseases and its treatments can adversely affect pregnancy. Approximately one-third of women with a seizure disorder will experience more frequent seizures in a pregnancy. Seizure disorders are associated with miscarriage, low birth weight, developmental disabilities, microcephaly, and hemorrhagic diseases of the newborns induced by anti-epileptic drugs. Seizure disorders increase the risk of congenital anomalies whether or not the mother is taking medication. So that's a clinical pearl. Seizure disorders alone increase the risk of congenital anomalies whether or not the mother's taking medication. Given the increased risk of neural tube defects with many anti-epileptic medications, supplementation with 4 mg of folic acid daily should be initiated at least one month before conception and continued throughout the first trimester. All right, well, let's wrap up this session with a quick review about immunizations during the preconception and well woman visits. For hepatitis B, ACOG recommends that we vaccinate all high-risk women before pregnancy and to counsel chronic carriers about prevention of vertical transmission. Regarding influenza, it's important to vaccinate all women who will be pregnant during the influenza season and women at risk of influenza-related complications. Regarding measles, mumps, and rubella, it's first important to screen for pre-existing immunity. ACOG recommends that we vaccinate all non-immune women who are not pregnant. It's also important to counsel patients to avoid pregnancy for three months after vaccination. So that's a clinical pearl. After the MMR, no pregnancy should occur for three months. Regarding tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, the tetanus vaccination may protect against neonatal tetanus. Vaccinate with Tdap during each pregnancy during 27 to 36 weeks to reduce the risk of neonatal pertussis. Lastly, regarding varicella, it's important to screen for immunity. It's also important to vaccinate all non-immune women who are not pregnant and to counsel patients to avoid pregnancy for one month after vaccination. All right, let's wrap up this session with a quick review of America's favorite over-the-counter drug, which is caffeine, because caffeine use is a common topic among preconception visits as well as pregnancy visits. In today's coffee culture, a common question has to do with caffeine use and early pregnancy. 
Well, let's review some of the evidence. In 2010, the American College of OBGYN published their statement on the topic. First, it must be stated that there is not an overwhelming number of clinical studies to base final conclusions on. However, after reviewing the available data, ACOG has found that Moderate caffeine consumption, defined as less than 200 milligrams per day, does not appear to be a major contributing factor in miscarriage or preterm birth. The relationship of caffeine to growth restriction remains undetermined. A final conclusion cannot be made at this time as to whether there is a correlation between high caffeine intake and miscarriage, and that's based on the ACOG committee opinion number 462. 200 to 300 milligrams of caffeine is comparable to two 8-ounce cups of standard brew coffee. Again, 200 to 300 milligrams of caffeine is comparable to two cups that are 8-ounce of standard brew coffee. So, go ahead and tell your patient that they can have that morning cup of coffee, but they should really limit their caffeine intake to two 8-ounce regular brew coffee. Now, does caffeine affect the ability of a woman to conceive? Well, although some studies have found a relationship between caffeine consumption and difficulty in conception, study results are inconsistent and should be interpreted with caution. Assuredly, once again, it seems that moderate caffeine use, again, defined as 200 to 300 milligrams per day, does not affect female fertility. In men, caffeine consumption has no effect on semen parameters. Well, that wraps up our session covering preconception care. We'll see you next time.